when we started this series in Genesis, I didn't realize all of the, the individual places uh, that God would kind of highlight for us as a church. When I first do a book, I, I, I read through the whole thing and I try to break it down and, you know, come up with an outline of how are we going to do this? How far are we going to spread this out? And there's certain themes that will come up and, and that I'll see in it and kind of a different way to approach um, the, the books of the Bible. And I did realize that when we get into the life of Abraham, which is what we've been studying for several weeks now, and then we see the... the um, the following generations that come after him, I realized there was a lot of family stuff to get to dig into. But I don't think until I really got deeper into studying this how much family stuff we would be really thinking about. And I know that in having conversations with many of you and, and even at our life group, the things that we've been getting into and talking about in some of these groups, are, there's some heavy family stuff in here. And it opens us up to all the family stuff that we deal with. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but at our life group Friday night, like we, we had some good conversations about some of these things that happen. Um, and and that's, that's part of what is, is, is going on. Wow. The Lord is with us. Family is one of the main topics that come up. And understanding family and relating within families is one of the most universal experiences of humanity. So it shouldn't surprise us when we get into scripture here and we look at people and we look at these relationships that that there's going to be issues that come up with families. Because families can be one of the primary sources of joy in our lives, but they can also be some of the primary places of sorrow and struggle in our lives. That's, that's the way it works. We're strengthened in families, but we can also be deeply wounded in families. And most of the time, it's kind of a messy mixture of both, isn't it? That's what I've experienced. And every person, though, as we, we dig into this a little farther, and every person is invited to become part of a new family, a family of faith, and that's part of the, the study that we learn as, as we go through Scripture. That we're, we're a family that's to be bonded together by the Spirit of God. But even when we come into this new family, the family of faith, because the people we're going to talk about here today are part of God's chosen family, the covenant promise family, the, the direct ancestors of Abraham, the father of faith. Even those people, these believers, these followers of God, they bring all their brokenness and all their dysfunction and all their shortcomings in with them into the family. And they suffer and struggle like everyone else. The difference is we have a greater hope of transformation and wholeness when we allow God to work within us. And without that transformation, things can come to desperate lows. When I was um, preparing for this, I, I I looked this up just because I get sidetracked sometimes and get interested in odd things. But in 1878, on the border of Kentucky and West Virginia, along the Big Sandy River, an argument over a pig, a hog, exactly, would escalate to events that would ultimately cause the deaths of more than a dozen people from two different families. You might have heard about this at some point. Um, It was a decades-long feud between these two families that became infamous in American folklore. What I'm talking about is the family feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. Anybody ever heard that before? Um, There's been, I mean, cartoons made about it. There's been all sorts of things that have happened. And this was an example of these family issues. These people literally lived across the river from each other. All right, the border of Kentucky and West Virginia, there's a river, the Big Sandy River. One family lived on one side of the river. The other family lived on the other side of the river. And starting out with an argument over a pig of, this is my pig. No, it's my pig. And my pig got out and into your field, and I need him back. And no, it's mine. And that started off this whole hatred between these two families and this ultimate battle that went on for decades 
where they ended up starting killing people and then retaliating for the person that you killed. And then there was the whole like Romeo and Juliet stuff happening where one family member got in a relationship with one from the other family and then they, they spirited away the girl to come live on the other side of the river. With the, I mean, all the crazy stuff that you'd expect in families. It happened at, at this point. Now, I only bring that up only because what I think it's a perfect um, picture for us of what families can come to when they're not allowing the transformation to take place, when they're not being reworked. And what we're going to see here in Scripture is really not much better. And that's what happens until people are pursuing after God's plan in their lives. So the, the title of this message this morning is Family Feuds Part 2. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we looked at Family Feuds Part 1, but here we are, Family Feuds Part 2. And although the outcomes aren't as dark as the Hatfields and McCoys, we're still going to see this chosen family struggle, but we're going to see God moving and working in the middle of it all. All right, so let's begin. We're in Genesis chapter 26, and we start in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, there was a famine in the land. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham... And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now, we've got to stop there just briefly. A famine was a very big deal in this society. All right? Um, Abraham and Isaac and their family, they were, they were Bedouins. They were people that moved around in tents um, across the, the, this desert area through here with all their livestock and all of their herds. And so as they're moving around, they're kind of, uh, um, you know, all, like gypsies. They're moving around. They're setting up their tents. They live in tents. When they run out of water or food, they tear down the tents. They pack up the family and they move to some other location. And so a famine in the land is a big deal for these people. A famine is a food shortage often connected to a drought. So a drought, you know, is no rain. A famine is no food. And a lot of times you end up with a famine because you had a drought. If there's no water to water the plants, to feed the livestock, the livestock, you know, they die and starve. And so then the people don't have the livestock to eat and all that comes with it, right? Um, they can't just run to the grocery store and have things shipped in from somewhere else in the world. Um, it was a big deal. And people would desperately move their families and herds to wherever they could find food. Isaac, if you remember, had inherited all of Abraham's belongings. He was the the son that got everything. So he got all of the livestock, all of the goods, all of the servants, all of those things. And in order to take care of all of that, he knew he needed to move his household somewhere else. And so he moved to this region of Gerar that's occupied by Philistines. Now, You might remember that if you've been going through this story with us, you might recognize this name again. And you might say, well, hold on, Um, I, I, I remember this Abimelech. Well, that name Abimelech, as we studied, it could be his actual name, or it could be kind of a, a title, like mayor or president. Um, we're not real sure because you see that name Abimelech pop back up in scripture. Even in the time of David, which is many, many years from now, there will be another king of Philistines named Abimelech. So it's either, it's either the same Abimelech who's now very, very old, who is around with Abraham, or it's the next person in the Abimelech role. All right. And in verse two, here's what it says. It says, and the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed." Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, God, it says there in verse 2, God appeared to Isaac. This is the first recorded appearance of God to Isaac in Scripture. Now, Isaac had heard of the Lord from his parents. He had seen the provision of God Remember, Isaac was the one who had been bound up on the altar when his own father was going to sacrifice him. <laughs> and then the, the ram caught in the thicket shows up. So he's seen some provision of God. 
He'd been blessed by God in many ways. But now, for the very first time, he sees the Lord. There's an appearance of God to this man, Isaac. I don't want us to skim over that. So far in the Bible, the only recorded appearances of God so far were to Adam and Eve, because God walked in the garden with them, to Abraham, Isaac's father, and to Hagar, the mother of Ishmael. That's it. That's the only three um, separate instances other than this that we've seen um, God actually appearing to someone. Now, I'll tell you right now, God has never appeared to me. Okay? I can't imagine, though, how profoundly that would change someone. Sometimes I kind of even question that, though, because I think if God appeared to us right now here at church, we'd be like, did that really happen? I'm not sure that that happened. That couldn't have happened. And then we'd be like, but we all saw him. Ah, I don't know. (laughs) Group hallucinations, does that happen? I'm not sure, right? It'd be interesting to figure out what that would be like. Now, I do believe that God has spoken to me directly, and I also realize that that seems crazy to people. (laughs) Um, In fact, personally, I'm often hesitant to believe people that tell me that God speaks to them. Um, Not that I don't think that God does, but I also have seen a lot of things attributed to God that they said, well, God told me this, that is clearly not God telling you that. (laughs) So it's right and good that we're a little careful about those things, um, but we also know and we see throughout Scripture that God speaks to people. God appears to people. God has impact in this world. And I know that for modern people in modern times, that can feel way out there. Way out there. Um, and, but, but I really do believe that God does continue to speak and God does want to um, teach us things and show us things. Now, the primary way that God speaks to his people now is through his scripture, through the word. That's why he gave it to us. That we can understand who he is, who his nature is, his character, what he is all about. We find that in scripture. And it's important for us, especially if we believe that we've heard God speak something to to us, is that it's important for us to confirm and test that. God is not going to contradict his word of the Bible. So if you know the Bible well, you'll begin to hear more clearly what it is that God could be speaking to you. All right, Um, But I do believe that when God appeared to Isaac here, it deeply impacted him. And the reason I can tell you that is because we see it in his obedience. Because God gave Isaac very clear instructions. And you might not see it unless you you dig a little deeper here in this. Um, the, The clear instructions were to stay in Canaan. He said to Isaac, don't go down to Egypt. The covenant promise is for you just as it was for your father. And it was going to take faith to stay in Canaan during this famine. Because that famine was going on. And Isaac would have asked himself the question, all right, well, what if we starve? Because Gerar, where he was at, was kind of on the way down to Egypt. And Egypt had the Nile River. And because it had the Nile River, it always had water. And there's that whole fertile area around the flood zone of the Nile River. So Egypt would always have food. That's why people throughout the desert over there, anytime there was a time of drought or famine, they'd pick up their things and head toward Egypt. And so it made good sense that Isaac is thinking, well, I got to get down to Egypt because that's where food is going to be. That's going to allow my family to survive. All right. But God speaks to him and says, don't go there. Now, you can imagine that Isaac would have felt very insecure and vulnerable at this moment. But these are often the places that God shows up to help us grow in our faith. Even though in the middle of it, in these hard places, we might feel like we've lost our faith or risking too much. He might not appear to us in a physical form like he did for Isaac, but his provision and his help can show up in many ways. Psalm 34, 17 and 18 says this. It says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
All right, let's move on. Verse 6. It says, So Isaac settled in Gerar. And when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. Ah, we've heard this one before, right? All right. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. And when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. This is a repeat mistake that Isaac has made. Um, Some of you chuckle because you know we've already gone through this. We've been there, done that with Abraham. Abraham did that not only once, but twice. Now, Abraham, uh, this was so far back, Isaac wasn't even born yet when Abraham had done this before. But I imagine this is one of those family stories that got passed down. I picture it, it's Isaac's mom telling him one day, you'll never believe what your dad did. You know, at this, twice he did this thing and it's crazy. You know, he was worried. We went into this other land and here's this king and the king's checking me out. And she goes through that whole story. And then she's like, and so your dad told me I'm supposed to say that I'm his sister. And, you know, all this whole deal. It got into Isaac's head somehow, all right? And so Isaac feels like, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good plan right now. Because I don't want to be killed because my wife is beautiful. And so he he does this, this very this very thing. Now, if this was the same Abimelech that Abraham had tricked, he knew better. He's he's like, I know this family, I'm gonna keep my eyes on them. And so when it says there that he looks out the window and he sees, he sees them laughing together, the word here is, you know, it's probably referring to some sort of flirting is going on. It's the kind of thing where he looks out the window and he's like, this is definitely not brother or sister stuff happening here. Don't know exactly what it was, but it's something enough where Abimelech's like, Mm-mm, I know this. I know this one. I've heard this one. And either he had experienced it before, because if you remember with Abraham, what happened was Abimelech took Sarah to be his wife. So he already knew. And then all of a sudden, all the the plagues of God basically start falling down on the family. And he's like, what's going on? And then they discover what's happening. So he's not going to do that. So even if it was him or his predecessor, he might have had some good, you know, notes in the royal archive that said, if somebody from his family comes in and claims to have a pretty sister... Be careful, you know. So that's what happens here. All right. And, and the, the outcome, even though, again, deceit is not what God's calling Isaac to do. He's not calling him to lie. God didn't say, don't go to Egypt and lie to this king. God doesn't do that. <laughs> that's not what, what's happening here. But the outcome was that Isaac and his family received some additional human protection. And it says there in verse 12, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. And he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. 
in the middle of this famine, in the middle of scarcity, Isaac flourished. From the beginning here, this is a time of drought and famine. And he plants and he gets a a return on his crops a hundredfold. Now that might have happened in a really good fertile time where there's lots of rain and lots of happen, but not in a famine. So he's the only one planting like everybody else, you know, out in the dirt and the desert, hoping a few little sprouts come up. And he plants and it's just blessed a hundredfold. And everybody around the Philistines are like, again? These lying, cheating guys that come in in the name of God, God keeps blessing them. We don't know why. But that's what happens. He flourishes here. And so the Philistines then felt threatened. They knew it's dangerous. We don't want to mess with this guy. And so they send him away. Now, water, especially in the time of famine and drought, was an essential resource. And those who controlled the wells controlled the land. That's why they had gone through and stopped up those other wells. It's not that they didn't need more water in the land. What it was is, in order to control people, then they would control who got water and who didn't get water. People being people, right? Um, Hoarding resources. That's what was happening. And that's what had motivated them to do what they had done. So, But then as, as Isaac now comes through here and starts opening up these wells of water, they're like, okay, well, we need that one too. We'll take it. And the next one, we'll take that one too. And so he keeps going farther and farther away from them until finally he's, he digs one and there's nobody there to come take it. So he's like, all right, we finally found our place. This is where we're going to be. Now, even though Isaac had been blessed, without access to water, all those possessions would have been lost. And so he and his servants put in hard work. And I want you to notice that. I've never personally had to go dig a well in the desert, but I got a feeling that's some seriously hard work, right? They put in hard work of digging these wells. And, and here's the thing that I want us to look at here. Um, one of the things I want us to take out of this. These two things, great blessing and hard work, often come as a pair in our lives, all right? Great blessing and hard work come together. And the reason is, this is part of the way that God shapes us, all right? Blessing without hard work spoils us. Hard work without blessing discourages us. But when you put them together, it can sometimes balance out what's going on, okay? Now, no parent wants their child to be spoiled or discouraged, But we all want our children to grow. We want them to be blessed. But we also realize that hard work, a lot of times, is part of what is necessary to help anchor them and ground them. Have you ever met anybody who everything was handed to them in life? It doesn't turn out very good most of the time. And some of the people that you would think, man, they've got all the resources in the world. Their kids are not going to have anything to worry about in their lives. That's the thing that they have to worry about in their lives, <laughs> is that they've never had anything to worry about in their lives. And so it's really hard for them to have any sort of ethic or morality or, or, or thing that, that drives them, makes them get out of bed in the morning. And, and it's a, it can be a real struggle. We as human beings are made to work. And I know that we don't like to hear that a lot of times, um, especially if you're in a place right now where you're like, you're sick of work, you're tired of work, you're like, I just can't wait to retire or get out of work, or I just want to quit. But we're made to work as human beings. God made us to work. But what we need to do is we need to reframe our work, the work that we do, because it is connected to the blessings of God. Now, I'm not saying that every job that you have is a great job and that you ought to keep that job forever because it's a blessing from God. Uh, but God can teach you even in those really hard jobs and in those difficult times. God has, has got a plan and he's at work in you. Whether it's hard work at home, you may feel like, oh my gosh, I'm, you, you know, you may be a stay-at-home parent that's just pouring into these kids every single day. I keep making meals, I keep going to the grocery store, I keep doing laundry, and these kids are ungrateful and unthankful and they just do what they do you know it's it's a thankless deal but again it's a great opportunity god is blessing you in the middle of it it's part of the way it works 
And it was through the hard work that Isaac ultimately saw that God made room room for them. If they hadn't dug the wells, if they hadn't done the hard work, they wouldn't have seen what God was doing in the process. All right, let's move on. Verse 23, hang in there, guys. You're doing it, you're doing it. From there, he went up to Beersheba. And I'm going to stop right now and show you. Oh, I didn't bring my little pointer. That's okay. Um, I'm going to show you this map just so you have a rough idea of where this is. Beersheba. Okay, so that's the Mediterranean Sea, the blue part over there. That's the Dead Sea to the right, that dark spot there. And if you can read this, there's Gerar, or roughly where we think Gerar is. Um, it's, it was both a city and a region um, called Gerar. There's a, a, right now, there's a, a tell, which is a, a big ruins area there in Israel that they think they found the city of Gerar, but they haven't excavated it completely. But just to the south of that, in the middle of Hebron up here and Be'er Lahai Roy down there, there's what's called Beersheba. All right, so it's just to the south and a little bit um, to the east of, of Gerar. And that's where we're at in this. And this is this place that he comes to. In verse 23, and he goes on and he says in verse 24 and says, and the Lord appeared. Okay, there it is again, a second time. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Azuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm. Just as we, as we have not touched you and have, done, and, and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. And that same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. This second appearance is coming after Isaac has already been obeying God. He's seen God. He's been aware of God. He started to follow God. He's done. He's made some choices in faith. But now we see in the second appearance, God now appears again, reassuring him, calming his fears. And it grew his faith to the place that now he becomes a person of worship. Okay, up to this point, he kind of knew about God. He kind of believed in God. He kind of thought, yeah, I should follow God with my life. But it's not until this point where we see now he says, okay, not only do I understand who God is, I want to actually worship God with my life. I'm going to be a person that follows after God for good. And this is the first place that that happens. He builds an altar and calls on the name of the Lord. That was more than just a private faith or an interest in God. It's public and it's confident and says, I am one who's going to follow God. And I think it's important that we, we see the progression in Isaac's faith through his life. We saw the same thing in Abraham. We view Abraham as this person of faith, this strong, faithful person. But what we also see is it takes time and it takes growth. You're not just born with faith or born without faith. You have to grow in your relationship with God. And we should never stop growing in that. Too many people misunderstand faith. And, and I'll tell you, it's, it's the fault of a lot of pastors, if a pastor tells you the only thing that there is about faith is you just need to pray this prayer and ask Jesus to be your savior and boom, you're done. It's all good. You're set forever. If that's all they tell you to do, that's on, that's on the pastor because that's not a life of faith. That might be fire insurance that you don't go to hell. All right, that's fine. But that's not what God calls us to. The gospel message says, yes, you're to put your hope and faith in Jesus, but then you're to allow him to change your life. 
This life that Jesus came to give was abundant life now and eternal life beyond this life. So that's the, the gap that happens in a lot of people's minds. They're like, well, I already prayed the prayer. I was in fourth grade. I remember it. I got a little certificate that they gave me. So I'm good. I don't understand why my life's a mess. And I don't understand why this happened and that's happening. And I don't, I don't know anything about God or anything else. No, it, that's not what it is. A life of faith is a life. And there's something that is happening and growing in a relationship. Life experiences shape us and build us to become the people that God wants us to become. And I do know that there's times in my life where I just feel like I'm not growing. I'm stuck. Something's got to happen here. When I lose hope about growth, I look to one of my favorite passages of scripture, Ephesians 4, which says this. Speaking the truth in love, we, all the people of faith, are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. One of the ways that we grow in faith is by being connected to the other people of faith. And there are times when my faith is weak and your faith is strong and your faith encourages my faith and vice versa. There's times when I have great faith for you and you're like, ah, there can't be a God. And that's part of the way it works. But we're all to be working together in this and growing together in this. So by the time Isaac settles here in Beersheba, his, his faith is, is firmly planted in the Lord. And he now knows what Abimelech had just declared when he said, God is with you. We see this. These guys weren't followers of God, but they saw the blessing of God in Isaac's life. And it was good that his faith had solidified because challenges were on their way. I know what you're thinking. You're like, wait a minute. We started out this message talking about family issues. We haven't even got to family issues yet. I know. Here we are. Hang on. All right. Here's here's what we're going to find out here in verse 34. It says, when Esau, so Esau, remember they had twin boys, Esau and Jacob. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. We don't get a lot of the details here, but a bitter life is not a good life. Okay? They might not have been able to agree on who their favorite son was. We looked at this last week where Isaac and Rebekah were playing favorites. You know, Jacob is with one and Esau is with the other. They might not have agreed on that, but they both agreed Esau's wives are a problem. And this problem is going to start creating some serious tension uh, in the family. Relationships are complicated. Just because you get along with someone doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in your family will. Can I get an amen? I bet there's, there's some of those things that we've experienced, right? And, and, you know, I've said this before, but I feel bad for Esau. I really do. Because it, it seems like he often gets swindled and taken advantage of by his own family, right? But we also have to recognize here, Esau was impulsive. He didn't think things through. And his own decisions were some of the decisions that hurt him as well. These Hittite wives were not a good choice. We don't have the details, but the making life bitter for the in-laws is not a virtue. We have to learn from that mistake alone. When you have a big decision that comes up in your life, don't just go for it. Pray about it. Think about it. Process it. Ask someone else who cares about you too. Um, you, you can, especially things like marriage, and proceed carefully. Chapter 27, verse 1, it says, And when Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim, so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, this 
is uh, an important thing here. What is this blessing that he's describing? What it seems is that Isaac and the rest of the family believed that this was something, this blessing that he's talking about is this spiritual thing that can't be retracted. You can't go back on this. And from what we, we get out of this section, as we're going to read through here, what the, the father believed was, when I give my blessing to my child, that sticks with them. And they're going to carry that. And that's going to help shape the rest of their lives. All right? There's no backing out of this one. There's no escape clause. There's no you know, lawyer to come help untangle the, the documentation. There's none of that. Now, it was this ceremony even before God. And in this culture, as we've talked about, um, the oldest son would receive the inheritance of the birthright. But remember, Jacob already ripped him off for the birthright. And the oldest would also get this blessing. Okay? Now, Jacob already had the, the birthright, and that made Isaac upset because Esau was Isaac's favorite. And, and Isaac said, I want to make sure that Esau at least gets the blessing. His, son, his, his other son had already ripped off Esau. Jacob had already taken the birthright. He's like, well, he can't have that back. But maybe I can do something here with the blessing. But remember, way back when the boys were still in the womb and Rebecca went and talked to God about what was going on. Because she's like, okay, this is this incredible thing, but I'm like getting beat up here with these kids. And God speaks and says, yeah, you're getting beat up because you've got two nations at war in your womb. And he says there, God speaks to her and says, and the older, they're not going to follow the the regular script of life because the older is going to serve the younger. God said that's the way it's going to be. The older will serve the younger. But in this culture, never supposed to be that way. The older is the oldest and the younger serves the oldest. But that's not what God said. He said, no, it's going to be flipped. The older is going to serve the younger. Isaac didn't like to hear that. Why? Because his favorite was the older. And it's the older. This isn't the way we do it. Come on, God. Like, get with the program. And so Isaac thinks, all right, well, at least I got one more chance here. Because even though he doesn't have the birthright, at least I can give him the blessing. And so what Isaac's trying to do is, here is he's trying to circumvent what God's already said is going to happen. He's like, I got a plan. I'm going to bring him in here, and I'm going to bless him, and he's going to be the one who's blessed. But Isaac has a problem. He's gone blind. He's gotten old. He can't see anymore. And we'll see what happens next. Verse 5. It says, Now Rebekah, his wife, was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son... Obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats, good young goats, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. He was from birth. And I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. And his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put, on the, deli- put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Look, buddy, you're digging yourself a deep hole here, right? Now now you've been claiming this from God. Oh, boy. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near me that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. 
So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. That had to be one seriously hairy dude. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And so he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Let's keep going. It says, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then? that hunted game and brought it to me. And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes. And he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob Remember, Jacob was heel grabber or cheater. For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. All right, so Jacob and Rebekah collude to steal Esau's blessing. Jacob already had the birthright. Couldn't he at least let Esau have the blessing? But like we said, Esau, he was just kind of going along with things, and Isaac was determined that he was going to turn things around and get rid of that decree that God had made. And so he blessed Jacob with everything he could think of. He thought, I'm going to throw everything into this blessing. I'm going to do everything I can to just bless and bless and bless this son. That, that God would recognize it. Unfortunately, everyone in the family is guilty in this feud. Isaac was trying to circumvent the word of God. Um, Rebecca wanted to repay Esau for the trouble that he caused in her life of these Hittite wives. Jacob was lying multiple times, blaspheming God, and Esau had been living impulsively for himself. One author uh, describes it this way. He says, everyone in the family sought the blessings of God without bending the knee to God. This little family was fraught with ambition, jealousy, envy, lying, deceit, coveting, malice, manipulation, stubbornness, and stupidity. And all these actions ended up really damaging the whole family. Look here in, in verse 41. We're almost done. We're doing this, guys. You're, you're, you're hanging in there. Verse 41 says, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. 
And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women, Esau's wives. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel of the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Now, Esau had every right to be angry, but murder is never the right solution. Neither is hatred. Now, Jacob was lucky that Esau had enough respect for his dad that he said, well, I'm going to kill you, but I'm going to wait at least till my dad dies. Um, otherwise, this might have been a very different, different story. But what it did is it gave Rebecca time to manipulate the situation once again and get Jacob sent far, far away. And if you remember from when we looked at this before, it was over a thousand miles by camel. Right? This was a long way away. This was the kind of thing when she says, yeah, go until your brother forgets. How long is it going to take for your brother to forget what you've done to him there? A long time. And that's ultimately what we're going to see happen. And so Jacob is sent himself. Not like when Abraham sent a servant. He sends, Isaac sends Jacob himself to go to find a wife. We also see here Isaac finally yielding to God's word. Notice that he didn't try to rewrite the script again. He understood it's going to be through Jacob that God's going to do his work. And so Jacob left with the birthright and the blessing, but he'd be gone for the next 20 years. 20 years. It's a long time. Sin is anything that damages relationship between ourselves and God or between ourselves and others. I give you this definition of sin all the time. If you're wondering, am I sinning against this person? Well, is it destroying your relationship with them? Is it destroying your relationship with God? Chances are, if any of those things are happening, there's sin involved in what's happening. This incident caused the whole family to fracture. Isaac lost trust in his wife. He couldn't trust her anymore. Rebecca would lose 20 years with her beloved son, and suffer estrangement from her husband and her oldest son, what's, what's the rest of that life going to be like? Esau lost everything and then would struggle with hatred and bitterness. And Jacob would, as we'll see later, will be plagued with fear, regret, and be exiled from his family. Everybody loses when they're following these, they're letting sin get into the family. As Christians, we want to be people that learn to be quick to repent and quick to forgive. Quick to repent and quick to forgive. We are going to hurt each other. We're people. It's what people do. But especially in your families, guys, try, try. And we talked about this at Life Group. <laughs> Sometimes we try and it doesn't work. I'm not saying it's always going to work out great, but attempt. Like that verse says, you know, as, as far as it is b with you, do your best to live at peace with all people. And I know that when you look at all of these things, um, you, you feel some of that family pain. And I know that there are things that, that may come up and be stirred up in your heart, in your life. We have one little section here and we're finished. Verse 6 says, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. 
And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabaioth. Esau had been neglected by his mother, deceived by his brother, a disappointment to his father, and above everything else, passed over by God. But even here, he's trying to win the approval and love of his parents. And I know that that sort of a thing probably resonates with people. And these family conversations can hurt. But remember, this world, these lives are not eternal One day God is going to make all things right and untangle all the messiness and injustice that's happened throughout history. He's going to wipe away every tear. But in the meantime, what we're called to do is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbors as ourselves, and as far as it depends on us, to live at peace with all people. I'm going to read you this verse and wrap up with prayer. In 2 Timothy, I, th- I think this, this challenge is for us, especially when it's dealing with our families and what happens. 2 Timothy 2.20 says, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, and love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. You can have an argument over a pig and kill people for decades. Okay, don't do that. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This might be the case with people even within your own family. But we want to aim to please God in it. I know this was heavy this morning. There's a lot of stuff here. But my prayer is that God will speak something to you out of all of this and um, that you would grow and be transformed.